Welcome to the Ad Nauseam Podcast, where classical gourmands everywhere can finally get their fill. Join us for a delectable discussion of Greco-Roman civilization stretching from the Minoans and Mycenaeans through the Renaissance and right down to the present. And now, ladies and gentlemen, here are your hosts, Dr. David Noe and Dr. Jeff Winkle. Welcome, listeners, to episode 29 of the Odd Nauseam podcast. My name is Jeff Winkle. I'm here, as always, with my somewhat reliable co-host, uh, David Noe, over there. How are you doing, Dave? I'm doing real well. It's a beautiful day here in Michigan. We've got some summer, some spring. Spring's first, isn't it? Yeah, spring's first, yeah. Okay, spring is about to sprung, and oh, it's gorgeous. It's gorgeous, it, which is kind of at odds with what we're talking about today, right? Which is the underworld. The underworld, right? I was kind of, as much as I like the sunshine, I was kind of hoping for... A little bit of dreariness. Can you count on that in the state of Michigan? You can. Usually in March, it's all drear all the yeah, time. We should probably cue the uh, spooky underworld music now. Maybe we'll cue it later. We're going to punch that in? Oh, several times. Several times. Right. So pay attention, listener, for that <laughs> that uh, eerie, spooky, underworldish music. Right. We're going to probably push that to the to probably up to the point of nausea. Yes, that's but, right. But not beyond. You got the shout out this week. I do. The shout out this week goes to Mr. Ryan Martini of Princeton, New Jersey. He is a Calvin University alum, and I think you're going to have to help me out with what exactly he does. He studies bioinorganic enzymology. Do you have any idea what that is? Well, the bio part, it means it has to do with life. Yes. But the inorganic means it doesn't have to do with life. Okay. And then enzymes, I think they go in your stomach. Okay. This sounds made up. It could be. It could be. (laughs) He's a Calvin alumnus after all. Right. So, you know... Right, and he and he actually listens to this podcast. Yes, he does. So, I mean, that's he's, that speaks to kind of a a Renaissance man quality about definitely. Him, right? yeah. Yes, he was my student at one point. He's moved on to greener pastures of uh, Princeton, New Jersey. So, hello, Ryan. Thanks so much for listening. Yes, thanks, Ryan. And Jeff, you have our opening quote this week, don't you? I do, and I, I chose this quote because the uh, Odysseus's uh, sojourn in the underworld. I often describe it to my students as being kind of the thesis of the epic. It's the kind of the dead center of the epic. It's the ultimate journey that any hero can take to the land of the dead. Can you make it past? Can you make it through? Can you make it back? And there's a moment in this uh, in this episode where Odysseus meets the ghost of Achilles, and I take that to be one of the essential uh, conversations, the essential meetings in the whole thing. And so this is a quote from Robert Schmiel's 1987 article called Achilles and Hades, where he's kind of talking about what do we make of Achilles' appearance in the underworld and, and what do we make of what he says there? All right, so let's hear that. All right. So if Homer had made Achilles Lord of the Dead, the greatness of Achilles' decision to die young but with glory would be diminished. If Achilles could have anticipated, not some Achaean Valhalla, but any kind of special status in the underworld, the price of glory would have become at least that much more reasonable. Odysseus' well-intended but inept attempt to console has the effect of reducing the fearful cost and therefore the terrible splendor of Achilles' decision. And that Achilles' Homer will not allow. Do not speak consolingly of death to me, glorious Odysseus. I could wish, if such a wish were open, to live in service to another, even a man without possessions, rather than rule over all the wasted dead. That is, the lowest position on earth would be preferable to the highest position in the underworld. Two theoretical possibilities neither experienced by Achilles— it is not a question of life without honor, as against death with honor. Hmm. So again, the, the concluding part of that nice quote from Schmiel, it is not a question of life without honor, as opposed to death with honor. Yes. What does that mean? How, how can we unpack that? Well, I mean, the, the main thing that I took away from this, this quote is, I think this is a really interesting idea that if Achilles 
uh, was expecting or had known he was going to be celebrated in the underworld. Uh, that would uh, in some that would that radically changes the way we see his his kind of his famous choice. Okay, right, and um, and and so Odysseus the way when we'll talk about this later, but when Odysseus approaches Achilles and the things that he says to him, Odysseus seems to assume that Achilles must have it great down here because he was so because he ruled above. He, he ruled above, right? So um, you can't really you can't really calculate the the full weight of Achilles' glory. You can't calculate the full weight of his choice without understanding kind of what happens to him after death. I see. Yeah. So you say it's the pivotal part of the epic. Mm-hmm. Are you suggesting, I've never heard this before, maybe yeah. it's common knowledge among uh, Homerists that it's placed in the center of the book, the, the epic book 11, you yeah. know, the, the pivot point on purpose. Is that deliberate, you'd say? Well, I, I don't know if it's deliberate. I think that works out very nicely. Um, uh, I will often, when I teach this, this section of, uh, have the students kind of open their translation, be it Lombardo's translation or, or, or other, and just kind of, you know, with your thumbs, find the, the dead center of, of the translation. The dead center. Oh, man, I didn't even <laughs> intend that. That's, That's so bad. bad. I'm, on, I'm on fire today. <laughs> <laughs> but it, it puts you right in Book 11. Okay. So, uh, so whether it was intended or not, and if you think of like Joseph Campbell's Heroes Cycle, you know, the lowest point, you know, that would be you know, six o'clock on, on, the, on the dial, mm. uh, the lowest point. That's the catabasis, that's right. the, the journey which you have to return from. It works out very nicely. Okay. Yeah. So let's talk about this word catabasis or catabasis, some say. It's uh, from the Greek verb katabino. Yes. So bino to go down, kata, or bino to go. Yeah. You know, there's anabino go up, diabino go across, katabino to go down. Yes. So this is the descent to the underworld, right. which is in every epic journey. The, the catabasis in the Iliad is arguably the tent scene. Uh, book nine. Yes. You could say that there Achilles is hulking in his tent and the three heroes, Odysseus, Phoenix, uh, Ajax, they have to go visit him. And, and that's the descent kind yeah. of, because there he is in the underworld. Of course, in the Aeneid, it is in book six. Book six, right. Aeneas goes down. I don't really know what would count as a catabasis in uh, the Argonautica, you know, Jason. Right. We can deal with that later, I suppose. But Apollonius doesn't really seem to follow that. Um, it's not a hard and fast rule. Epic but, convention. But I mean, so either a kind of a literal descent or like you're saying in the Iliad, it's a kind of a metaphorical descent. And also in the Iliad, too, we have um, Priam goes mm. through a, a, he does his own catabasis at the end. That's where right. He goes, again, he goes to Achilles' tent. So, mm-hmm. yeah. And possibly the nighttime raid of Odysseus and Diomedes. Right. I mean, we could probably stretch the limits of catabasis, but it's a crucial moment of descent or change of location. And the character, the main character is supposed to emerge changed in some way. Yes, exactly. So that's what we're going to look at today. Does Odysseus learn something here? Um, What exactly does he gain from the experience? Uh, Rejecting the Iliad's ethos of death and the embrace of the Andra, the man, from the first line of the epic, it all takes place in this book. And of course, there are lots of questions that Greeks of old and uh, listeners you know, of today would like to know. Is there a particular Greek view of the afterlife? Yes. What, what did they think about what it was like? Right. And uh, what does he have to do to return to his domestic life on the island of Ithaca? Right. All right. So when we last left uh, Odysseus, he was on Circe's island with his men. They were trapped there for about a year. And now it's time to go. Odysseus convinces Circe to let them go. She tells him, you got to go to the underworld. You've got to consult with Tiresias there. He's going to give you the information you need about how to get home and your next steps. 
So let's get into book 11. And Dave, I believe you got some Greek to read for us. I do. Homeru Odusea Lambda. Remember that the books are named after letters of the Greek alphabet, and we're up to Lambda, which apparently is the 11th letter in the alphabet. I wouldn't have known that off the top of my head. Here we go. The first few lines of uh, book 11. One more, number five, finish off the sentence. Oh, very nice. It's beautiful language. It's beautiful, beautiful language, right, yeah. So what, what do those lines mean there, Dr. Winkle? All right, this is from Stanley Lombardo's translation. When we reached our black ship, we hauled her onto the bright salt water, set up the mast and sail, loaded on the sheep, and boarded her ourselves, heartsick and weeping openly by now. Hmm. So more weeping. Of course. Yep. Every 10, 15 lines, as I've said before, in the, in the Odyssey, someone is either eating or weeping. Or weeping. What are they crying about here? Is it just like it's, it's, it's spooky? Not yet, because they're they're not to the place of the dead. But yeah. I don't know. I think Odysseus has mixed emotions. He seems to really like Circe much more than he liked Calypso. It, indeed. But he really wants to get home. And the men, I think they're just lost. Yeah. Maybe these are uh, after effects of living the porcine life for a year. It's got to bring anyone to tears, doesn't it? Right. Well, it seems like they had it pretty good there. Maybe they're weeping because they missed the, they missed the, the snacks. That could be. I yeah. don't know. <laughs> At any rate, soon they do exactly what Circe tells them to do, and they have to dig this pit and, uh, and make this sacrifice uh, with the lamb that Circe herself gave them. Um, again, Lombardo, after Odysseus makes the sacrifice, the blood spills into the pit, and uh, we learn, Then out of Erebus, underworld, the souls of the dead gathered, the ghosts of brides and youths and worn-out old men and soft young girls with hearts new to sorrow, and many men wounded with bronze spears, killed in battle, bearing blood-stained arms. They drifted up to the pit from all sides with an eerie cry, and pale fear seized me. Hmm. So what I like about this, and as I explain it to my students, uh, Odysseus takes a, a kind of a, a sword to dig a trench. Yeah. And he slaughters the, uh, the sheep, and the blood pours out into the trench. And this is kind of like mosquitoes coming up to this trench to feed on the oh, blood. Oh, I like that. Yeah, and they are—they're disembodied souls. They're—they're they're shallow and thin and thirsty in some ways. They—they they come up to drink the blood from this trench, and it draws them in the same way that, well, you know, at a picnic in the summer, you—you you take out—I don't know what it is that attracts mosquitoes, but they're after human blood. Yeah. So the ghosts are like this, and I love the description. It's, it's a great translation, but also the way Homer has a tableau or a broad landscape of human experience. Brides and youths, yes. worn out old, old men, soft young girls, hearts new to sorrow. So why are these young girls sad? Yeah. Maybe because it's unrequited love, or maybe it's because uh, their, you know, their husband, their... Um, Newly married husband has died in battle because what what follows right after it is many men wounded with bronze mm. spears and killed in battle, bearing bloodstained arms. Yeah. So again, we have a, a very broad perspective of what human experience is like, but it's all sorrow. Right. And it's connected to war. Yes. And they carry with them to the afterlife, to the next world. Uh, these blood-stained weapons. Yes, it reminds me of. Uh, uh, I'm sure it reminds some of our listeners of, like the Norse concept of Valhalla. Yeah, like, you know, warriors carry your wounds 
with you into the into the next life. Continuity yeah. is really interesting to me. It also makes me uh, think of Virgil's underworld in the Aeneid. For sure. Where he, he I think he expands upon these varying lines where if uh, he has, Virgil's underworld is kind of like a department store and there's a, it's much more organized. Uh, Definitely. Right. So you my, have my main metaphor later for uh, the Odyssey is going to be the Department of Motor Vehicles. Oh, really? So I don't want <laughs> I don't want to break it out now right. because, boy, I got a lot to say about that. OK. But Virgil's is more like a department store. It is exactly right. And so there's a there's, you know, down the one spur of the mall is right. where the young women died of broken hearts. Right. And if you were a warrior, but maybe you weren't that great of a warrior and you right. died, you, you're over here. In right? housewares, perhaps. Housewares. <laughs> I've nearly died there many times. <laughs> <laughs> Pull it together, Wink. I'm oh, sorry. Headphones went flying off. We got we got headphones in the vomitorium. We do. Week? Oh gosh, yes. How oh. are we doing with the new technology? Oh man, I mean, we got we got a new tub. Hey, when you get as many downloads as we've gotten, thanks yes. to our fabulous guest, it's time to upgrade the tub. So we went from a small tub to a larger tub. Right. We went from a three season tub to a four season. Yes. Tub. Right. Yeah. Who yeah. knows what the limit is in uh, <laughs> tubitude? <laughs> Why is Odysseus afraid? They drifted up to the pit from all sides with an eerie cry and pale fear seized me. Yeah. What's he afraid of? It's creepy. My it's, goodness. It's just the ambiance? Yes. I mean, th- this is terrifying. This wouldn't freak you out? I, well, yes, but I'm afraid of much lesser things than this. I want to know what specifically is the danger that he fears. It's just the the discomfort of being around the spirits of the dead and seeing how they're dragging themselves around? Or does he fear they're going to harm him? I, well, I, it's hard to say. I mean, uh, I mean, I could be remembering this wrong from, from book 10, but I, I, I think Circe gives him this instructions, but I don't she, think she really prepares him for exactly what's going to happen. So he digs this pit and there's the blood in the pit, um, which is kind of, well, I guess, I mean, for this world, it's that's not a rare thing, but he doesn't know exactly what's going to happen next. And when these go- he, these ghosts are coming forward, and you remember, you know, later he talks about he has to he has to try to keep fight them off, fight them the off, right? So if they just kind of come swarming, it's like he's on the battlefield and he's completely outnumbered. They're coming for the blood. Yes, and this is the point again where all of. Yeah, not all, but my students often ask, "Oh, they're ghosts. So what do they want with blood? And how can he fight them off with a sword?" Right. These are biological questions. Yes. So maybe the guy to whom we gave a shout out today, maybe he can answer those. Are these ghosts bio-inorganic? <laughs> I don't know. Oh. But those are not things we can answer. <laughs> right. It's, it's just enjoy the story. Come right. On. Right. Exactly. There, I always find myself saying that a lot, too. There are just some some questions you just you just can't or shouldn't ask. Let, let's just uh, All right. yeah, enjoy, the, enjoy the story. Yeah. And what happens next? Who is one of the first persons that he encounters? I think this, this is such a fascinating episode because I don't quite know what to make of it. But the, I, I think it's literally the first ghost he sees and recognizes is Elpinor. Elpinor. Who's Elpinor? Elpinor. I believe he had, took a tumble from Circe's parapet. A little bit, yes. And landed in the bushes, if I'm not mistaken. Yes. But uh, not not a soft, comfy landing. No, but no one knew he was there. <laughs> right. right? He kept texting and texting. <laughs> Odysseus, I'm in the bushes. <laughs> exactly right. And they got on the boat and left him. Right. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm sure the service was spotty. Probably. But, right. But no, he, he's dead, right? He yeah. dies. He breaks his neck or, or whatever. And yep. From they, the fall. They take off without him. Nobody seems to notice that he's not on the boat. And That's the saddest part of all. Right. Honestly. People, people fall and tumble and get harmed in various ways, and people die. Right. It's, it's the fact that no one on the crew notices his absence. That, to me, is the 
the pathetic part of the story. It, it really is quite sad. And, um, but I've always kind of wondered if we're meant to take this as a, almost a kind of really bleak comedy. Are you going to try to complicate things again? Well, that's, isn't that our job? All right. Right. To, to, <laughs> to see things that aren't really there. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, it raises this question that we've brought up a number of times in recent episodes. Like what kind of commander is Odysseus? Yeah. He doesn't account for everybody. Not a caring uh, one. Not a caring one, right? Um, but nobody else seems to notice either. And That's so the, true. the surprise that Odysseus um, shows when an opener comes, comes forward, it's absurd. Mm-hmm. And I get. I, oh, oh, you're dead. Yeah, oh, you're dead. Wait. I, I last saw you, you know, in the sitting room at Circe's. Yeah, exactly. You said you were going out for a smoke, and, it, you know, here you are, here you are in the underworld. And remember, these guys are down to one ship. Mm-hmm. So Odysseus couldn't couldn't say, couldn't have the excuse, oh, you know, well, I don't right. see Elpinor, but he's probably on ship. We'll meet him at the next rest stop. On ship Lambda over <laughs> right. there. <laughs> right, exactly. No, not at all. And so I don't know if, if, if uh, like, seeing this as a black comedy is just imposing too much. Maybe. Things. I liked your expression, our job is to see things that aren't there. Right. The best interpretation I have for this is it, in, and, you know, maybe this isn't accurate, but it's meant to show... The, the vagaries of human fortune, hmm. right? So you are Elpinor, and you at least have a name. Remember, most of the men don't even have names. Yeah, that's uh, true. You're, you're traveling with one of the greatest heroes of all time. So you have that kind of uh, cred, but your death goes unnoticed. And isn't this kind of just what life is like? The, the concept of Hellenic pessimism? Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, that life is bad and only getting worse? Well, here's exhibit A. Elpinor, yeah, dead in the bushes, and nobody notices until you meet the guy who's responsible for you in the afterlife. In the afterlife, right? It, it's it's almost it's in some ways it's it's like the worst nightmare of the Iliad, right? To to die unburied and, exactly. and, and unwept. Your body left on the plane, yes. right, for the dogs and birds, but even less heroic because it's not a heroic death. Yeah, tumbling into the bushes, there's nothing heroic. Nothing about heroic. That. No, it's 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 pathetic. Yeah, right. That, that, that's a. That's probably the best we can do. But what does he want from Odysseus? He wants a burial. He begs Odysseus to, uh, on his way back, stop and give him proper burial here, right? So I guess we're uh, to assume that even Circe, you know, who's, you know, apparently you know, trimming the bushes, right? She's, she's taking care of the, the landscaping. She doesn't even notice. She got a solar-powered uh, trimmer <laughs> or is she cord only? Or? I think she was hoping to upgrade. Did I say solar? I meant to say... Um, I meant to say rechargeable battery, lithium, because those are all the rage right now. Are they? Well, spring's coming. I'm thinking about these things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you, you know, so no more extension cord. No more extension cord. Yeah, well, I got a, I got a cordless extension cord now. <laughs> yeah, I think Cersei. I think Cersei uh, certainly had something along those lines. Okay. Yeah, the lithium pack. And she doesn't notice poor Elpinor either. Well, well or there, if there's some kind of ritual rule that you know he has to be buried by mortals. I, I don't know mm-hmm. the, the rules here, but I maybe this is one of those questions you just don't ask. Mm-hmm. But. Yes. So, so he has a name, but he has no other dignity. Right. Hmm. So. And Odysseus' men, they, I mean, to their credit, they keep this promise. They um, go back, they, they go bury back. him. Yeah. And the way to understand it generally is that he can't have a happy afterlife if his body isn't properly cared for. Right. The, so he, he would But I don't be... want to push that too far because there, there aren't any specific rules, it seems, for afterlife. Right. But from what we know, what we know about you know, burial practices. I think that is the idea of that if you don't have the proper rituals, then you're trapped between this world and the next and you become one of these liminal, liminal, liminal wandering <laughs> spirits. Right. So that's, I mean, that's, that's very much a, a part of the, uh, the, the ancient Greek view of things. Okay. So, yeah. And who comes up next? Um, well then, um, Tiresias comes up. 
so this is the guy that Cersei says, this, this is the prophet, um, see him, and he's going to tell you um, what you need to know. But actually, before Tiresias comes forward, Odysseus sees his mother, uh, Anticlea. And I think this is also really interesting, too, because we'll, we'll, we'll get to their, their um, tragic, weepy reunion. Um, but uh, Odysseus kind of gives mom the stiff arm. Yeah. And says, wait, 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 mom. Tiresias is the guy I came to see. He's focused on the task. Right. But he didn't know. I, I like this scene a lot with Anticlea. He didn't know she was dead. Yes. Until this point either. Because, of course, he's been gone for almost 19 years. Yes. And Anticlea's mode of death is tragic, right? She dies of grief. Grief, right. I believe by walking into the sea and drowning. Is that is that the tradition? Mm-hmm. Oh. If not, I just made it up. It, so. I, I'm, that's, 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 that's certainly possible. Beautifully tragic. Yes, yeah. <laughs> Awful, yeah. Doesn't know that she's dead until he encounters her. And right. her name, of course, means, uh, Anticlea, means lack of glory, the opposite of glory. Right. right. The reduction of glory, you might say. Right. Which is interesting. Um, so she's the kind of a matriarch, right, in the household. Definitely. And um, the the nursemaid, the slave, Eurycleia, whose name means broad, broad glory. you know, grief, uh, expansive, grief, glory far and wide, mm-hmm. has this elevated name. And the grandmom here has this very low name. And Eurycleia, of course, will be a mother figure for Odysseus during the reunion, which is coming up in a much later episode, a later book. Anticlea gets the stiff arm. She does. I mean, what do you make of that? that, He's he's focused on the task. So he just sees, this is the guy I I need need to to get this information from him, as Circe told me, because I want to get home. So even though he hasn't seen his mother in 19 years, and two, he's just now realizing that she's dead. Mm -hmm. And C, she has this crazy name. (laughs) <laughs> that's C. <laughs> yeah, despite all these things, he gives her the stiff arm. Yes. And turns all of his attention to Tiresias. Right. And what is the nugget of information that he gets from Tiresias that allows him to complete his quest? Well, there's a number of nuggets here. Okay. Yes. And uh, I mean, it's like a five piece or a fi- combo? Yeah, five piece. All right. He's going through the, the drive through here. And first of all, Tiresias tells him what's been going on in Ithaca. So Odysseus. It, again, he's getting a clearer picture of kind of what is in store for him. As as with Menelaus and Helen, right? Right. Book four. Right. And just to kind of prep our audience, um, the full second half, full second half of the of the epic is Odysseus on Ithaca, right? And kind of his slow process of retaking his household. So I think a lot, a lot of this information he gets from Tiresias and bits and pieces here and there are giving him pause. Mm-hmm. And he's being very careful. I will just drop this in because it occurs to me and it's interesting. Uh, those who are C.S. Lewis fans, the first book, you know, Lion, Witch, and Wardrobe, uh, Aslan is in Narnia. He's on the move and so forth. That's taken directly, I would say, from Odysseus is on Ithaca, but nobody can quite find him. Where is he and what is he doing? I did not know this. Yeah, so that's an anticipation for later episodes. But oh, really? I, I, find it, I find it very fascinating. Is he uh, to the d- degree like he's borrowing... Language? Well, I think so, def- okay. definitely. And maybe I can't prove it. And it's not the only story that deals with this theme, but it seems to be quite suggestive. Yeah, that sounds great. Yeah. So um, so Tiresias tells him, um, you know, what's going to happen. Not, not what's going to happen, but what in, lies in store for him. Uh, information about uh, his next steps. And then he also gives him this really interesting, strange prophecy about Odysseus. we got to have the prophecy. Right. And again, maybe like with the appearance of the ghosts... Um, this is something that Odysseus has not been prepped uh, for by Circe, right? So he says, I'm going to talk to Tiresias, so I'm going to get this information about, about home, but then he gets a lot more. Okay, so what is the prophecy? You have that from the Lombardo? I do. Um, 
Tiresias tells him. So he says, once you've done all the stuff, you've, you've taken the, their household back, you're reunited with your wife and son. He says, then you must go off again, carrying a broad-bladed oar, until you come to men who know nothing of the sea, who eat their food unsalted. What? Can you imagine? Like an unsalted nugget. So it wasn't really something he got from the drive. <laughs> no, exactly. And the right. salt cascades over your fingers and down your sleeves. Exactly and... right. So he's at the organic health food store, something like that. No salt. So these men who eat their food unsalted and have never seen red proud ships or oars that wing them along. What? Yeah. No red ships either. No. Exactly. These these people. These are strange people. These are strange people. It says and I will tell you a sure sign that you found them, one you cannot miss. When you meet another traveler who thinks you are carrying a winnowing fan, huh. which is a, some kind of agricultural tool. Let me explain it for oh, you. Oh, please. Just break it down. Did you grow up on a farm, right? Yes. We had winnowing fans wall to wall. You did not. And we wickered also. <laughs> What's a winnowing fan? Well, so when you gather in the sheaves, you bring them in, and then you beat them, right? And mm-hmm. the, um, the kernels fall off with the chaff onto the floor. Yes. Then you take this winnowing fan, which is a long pole, and at the end of it is a a large, flat, pancake-shaped fan. It's kind of like a sieve. And then you take the chaff and the grain mixed together, and in a great swoop, you throw it vigorously up into the air. The wind comes along, blows away the chaff. The heavier seeds fall down onto your fan. Wow. And that's how you winnow. Wow. It's It's a winnow-take-all kind of... Oh, man. Well, experience. <laughs> I had a bad pun earlier, so I think we're, 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 we're tied now. Just put the pun down and walk away. No one has to get hurt. <laughs> no, exactly. So uh, this sounds old school. I mean, that sounds like... Uh, yeah, we didn't use any winnowing fans. Oh, you didn't. But I think the key here is yeah. he's carrying a paddle. Yes, a broad-bladed oar. A, blo- a broad-bladed oar. Yes. A BBO. And he's going to meet someone who thinks it's a winnowing fan. Yes. Right. Because they've never seen... An oar. An oar. Or a ship. Right. Or, so it's completely landlocked, in it, other words. Exactly right. Which is a rarity in, uh, you know, a maritime society like Greece was. Exactly right. And then Tiresias finishes up. He says, so when that happens, when this guy says, hey, what's with the winnowing fan? Then you must fix your oar in the earth, plant it, mm-hmm. and offer sacrifice to Lord Poseidon. A ram, a bull, and a boar in its prime. Hmm. A ram... A boar, a bull? A bull. A bull, and a boar in its prime. It's prime, right. Okay, when does a boar reach its prime? I think it's around age eight. Okay. That's what I've heard. There's another important prophecy that Tiresias shares with Odysseus. There is. A life-changing one. Yes. But we're going to deal with that... After the break. After the break. Are you a coffee drinker, Dave? If you cut me, do I not bleed coffee? Well, how do you get your daily cup of delight, the sort of brew that sustains you while you wade through exams and quizzes, preparing intricate and soul-breaking assignments for your poor students? Uh, I got to tell you, Jeff, I'm doing a lot of waiting now. I have a big <laughs> stack of papers. It's that it's that time of year, isn't yeah, it? The yeah, the exams and papers are coming up to drink from the blood of my red fountain pen like the souls in the underworld. <laughs> I gotcha, I gotcha. Every morning, I brew a pot of fine java with a ratio eight. It's an automatic over coffee maker. Oh, I've seen I've seen that machine. I have the six, and I love that too. Um, what do you like? So about I'm you? two ratios ahead of you. You is that are. Right? I got to catch up. Yeah. <laughs> well, what do you like about it? Well, first of all, it is beautiful. It's uh, it's not something to be 
ashamed of when it's sitting on your countertop. You know, when you have guests over and, and maybe I'm sure Mrs. Winkle's not like this, but, and you're not, but you haven't had all the time you need to tidy up, right? Oh, oh I'm there. Okay. Yeah. Because <laughs> the friendship is more important than the tidiness. That's true. I just set the ratio eight right out in front and it grabs everybody's attention. Yeah. And they just stare at that, you know, like. It's mesmerizing. It, exactly. It's yeah. gorgeous. <laughs> Some people use a, an appliance hutch you know, to cover up their appliances, but you want this baby front and center to oh, show yeah. your guests. Hutch free. But exactly. I understand it also makes some good coffee too. You got that right, Jeff. Racial coffee makers are made of all premium quality materials, aluminum, stainless steel, borosilicate glass, no plastic or other junk. It will heat the water from zero to 200 degrees Fahrenheit in under 20 seconds. It is quick. I, I like that it's a lot. It's incredible. Yeah. It comes with a five-year warranty. Now, what kind of a coffee maker gives you that? Jeff, can you tell our listeners about the discount they can receive? I can. Ratio is offering 15% off their Ratio 6. It's featured at places like Crate and Barrel and Williams-Sonoma, but Odd Nauseam listeners can get a direct-to-consumer discount by going to RatioCoffee.com and entering our special code ANCO, and they will get 15% off the Ratio 6. So go to RatioCoffee.com and enter that code. Get your discount today. Great coffee. Check it out. Today's episode is also brought to you by the good people at Odd Astra Coffee Roasters in Hillsdale, Michigan, to the stars with great coffee. Dave, Patrick, and his crew there in South Central Michigan, they really know how to roast those beans. That's right, Jeff. The poetry series with poems from Wallace Stevens, Rilke, William Wordsworth, these are printed on the bag, and inside is absolute lyricism of delicious coffee. That's very true. They've got the Tenebris blend. They've got the poetry series, uh, the Guatemala Huehuetenango. Oh, man. Haven't tasted that one yet, but I'm really looking forward to it. That, I'm still kind of stuck on the Tenebris. That's that's what's one of my favorites, too. Well, it's topical, too, isn't it, if we're talking about the dead? Exactly right. Yeah, the shades. Yes, exactly. So tell our listeners more, if you will, Jeff. Well, listeners, if you haven't checked out their website, you should just take a look. It explains how they use an old-fashioned method of roasting with a giant repurposed roaster, and it explains where they source those beans. Wait, so, wait a minute. What was it repurposed from? Um, I, I don't know. It was a, was it a lithium battery uh, trimmer? <laughs> I think it was something like that. <laughs> That's right. All kidding aside, they roast only 84 on the coffee roasting bean scale or better. So 84 or better, so you're going to get a, a B or a B plus cup of coffee every time. Every time, right. More than that. It's going to be closer to an A minus A. It's fantastic. It's great stuff. So ad nauseum friends, go to Ad Astra Roasters, Ad Astra, A-D-A-S-T-R-A, roasters.com. Check out some of their delicious offerings. You get a special 10% off by entering code A-N-A-A, and you can also sign up for their monthly subscription. And today's episode is also sponsored by Hackett Publishing. Now, Dave, I know you've been in that situation where all you want to do is sit back with some Aristophanes or Horace, but all you can find on the shelf are volumes that are so chock full of turgid, stuffy poetry and prose, you can practically smell the dank, musty tweed. Of course, but Hackett has changed all that. Listeners, with a click of a button, you can be on your way to discovering Hackett's deep well of attractive, falling into their deep well, attractive, affordable, accessible translations from the entire sweep of the Greco-Roman era. Yep. Comedy, tragedy, philosophy, history, whatever floats your trireme. And the hits keep on a-coming. This very month, Hackett is releasing Eric Jensen's new tome, The Greco-Persian Wars. Not just classics, Jeff. You can find stuff on modern languages, Asian and Latin American studies, and much more. That's very true. But let's get down to the nittus grittus. Dave, tell our listeners what they've won. A.N. Peeps. 
I can't say that. You want to graduate magna cum nausea? Right now, you can save 20% on any order and receive free shipping from Hackett Publishing. All you have to do is go to Hackett Publishing, H-A-C-K-E-T-T, publishing.com, find the text you want, and enter AN2021 in the box which asks for the coupon code. Give us five up high. Don't leave us hanging. All right, so as we get back into this, Tiresias gives a second prophecy to Odysseus. Um, read some of that for us, would you? Sure. So this is from the Rue translation, R-I-E-U. It's Penguin, late 1950s. It's prose. Not, not quite as nice as Lombardo, but it's a little bit of variety. Tiresias says, as for your own end, speaking to Odysseus, death will come to you far away from the sea, a gentle death. When he takes you, you will die peacefully of old age, surrounded by a prosperous people. This is the truth that I have told you. Now, I know you're getting sick of me talking about Madeline Miller's Circe, um, but she she handles this episode of Odysseus's death in a really clever uh, kind of way. Okay, well, it's the Ad Nauseam podcast, so sickness is de jour. Tell right. me, how does she handle it? Well, I, I want to save that for a later episode. Um, I, I what? Mean, yes. You're going to tell me I'm going to get sick of hearing about it, and then you say... You well, know. you're sick of talking about uh, that particular book, so we, we'll cover it. Okay. But, uh, I mean, Odysseus is very much alive at the end of uh, the Odyssey, right? So Homer does not cover the death of Odysseus, and right. so what it means that death will come from the sea. It's another kind of haunting odd prophecy. I guess it's, this is a, a little bit of comfort for Odysseus. He's going to he's going to die peacefully. He's going to die surrounded by by loved ones. Um, but it's also not the heroic Iliadic death. He doesn't die covered with glory on the battlefield like Achilles does. This yeah. is a very different story. Yes, that's an excellent point. He's, mm-hmm. he's the man. He's not the man of arms. He's yes. the clever one, Polutropos. Yes. So even in death, he has to be distinguished from Achilles. That's exactly right. So we're going to go on to Anticlea. Right. So finally, now he gets around to mom. Finally, right. He gets a Tiresias' information. He says, okay, mom, let's, uh, let's, uh, let's reunite. And what do we know about her? Well, she's the daughter of Autolycus, about whom I don't think anything else really is known. Uh, in another legend, it's a later one, uh, Sisyphus, the famous Sisyphus of the, the stone. In a later legend, uh, Sisyphus actually does violence to her. And then Odysseus is the son of Sisyphus in a oh, later yeah. legend. Right. But that's not canonical in terms of the story that Homer's telling. Right. It's just an interesting fact about uh, this woman, Anticlea. Initially, Odysseus keeps her away from the blood, and then she tells him how she died from grief during his absence. Right. A, a, a broken heart. That's right. right. Longing for her son. Just kind of, you know, his wound piling up piling upon wound here for for Odysseus. Right. So he asks her, did you die of illness? Uh, Did you maybe die because you were shot with one of Artemis's shafts? Yes. And then the order in, and she tells him, you know, I I died of suicide really from sorrow. And uh, the order in which he then asks the next questions, the next set of questions is really significant. Do you have that in front of you? Yes, I do. Read it. Of course. Yes. He asks first, uh, what about my father? His father, of course, is Laertes. Secondly, what of my son? And third, what of my wife? Now, this is quite different, I would say, from modern sensibilities. And sure. I like to point this out. I'm not saying in any way that it's better. Frankly, I don't know how I would react in the underworld talking to my mother, you know, who has knowledge of the world above that I don't. I don't know what I would say, but it's certainly different than modern sensibilities. Yeah. It shows the importance of the filial bond. Right. You ask about your father, the respect for the 
the paterfamilias, the father of the household. Then you ask about your son. So I always explain this to students as this is a look at um, history. You know, the father is tradition and it's a look at the future. You know, the son is your legacy, posterity. Right. So after asking about both of them, then he says, and what about my wife? Mm -hmm. Now, it's true that I think Penelope is his main motivation, as he tells Calypso. It's his main motivation for wanting to get back to, she is, to Ithaca. She doesn't come first here in the list of questions. No, she doesn't. And the question he asks specifically is, uh, has she remarried? This is a key plot element that you can't just throw away, right? So don't even try it, Winkle. This, okay. <laughs> this is a key plot element. Okay. And what does it mean? Well, this is, he's, he's worried, right? He does, this is something he doesn't know. I mean, Odysseus, he's, um, he knows he's been gone for such a long time. What has Penelope been doing? Um, if, she's, if she's remarried or if she's not remarried, if she's being pursued, I think that there's going to be a fight um, either way, but he, has, he wants to know what he's dealing with when he comes home. Um, what's the status of his relationship? Right. And th so the slow reveal, detail by detail, a little bit at a time, scattered across many books, is part of the way that Homer builds incredible suspense yes. in this homecoming story. Right. Another really interesting thing that I wanted to, to point out here is when he asks about his father and he asks about his son, it's um, it's echoed almost exactly when he meets Achilles. Um, Achilles asks the same thing. What about, what, you know, uh, what's my son doing? What's my father doing? And so it's, in asking those questions, it's almost as if Odysseus himself is amongst the dead, right? He's been gone so long, it's as if he is dead. He, does, he, he, he wants the same information that the dead Achilles wants to know. And so I think there's, Homer wants us to draw a parallel that, yes, Odysseus, he's alive, he's, um, uh, he's living in the upper world, okay. but he's lived a life that is... So a, cut a, off, a, is what you're saying. Yes, he's, it's a living death. Hmm. Yeah. Interesting. So cut off from the, the land of the living, he doesn't even have basic data about his exactly right. immediate family. Exactly right. Yeah. Hmm. And so I think even linguistically, Homer wants us to, to draw those things together. Hmm. But we can look at that. We can look at that more when we get down to the Achilles episode. And then he tries to hug her, right, three times, which is a, a really moving element in the in the book. He tries to hug her three times, and he fails three times. And the basic reason—I don't know if this is comic or not—but the basic reason is that um, Anticlea says, "You know, son, I don't have any huggable portions." Huggable portions. Yeah, there's nothing here to hug. <laughs> If I'm not mistaken, why are we making such silly jokes when the theme is death? But if I'm not mistaken, Nabisco has <laughs> a lunch product, doesn't it? Huggable portions. <laughs> they come in a wide variety of vegetable and lamb and beef. Put them right in your lunch box. Take them to work. Great for the job site. Right. They keep well. Yeah, yeah, huggable portions. <laughs> but uh, Anticlea doesn't have any of these. She has none. And so Odysseus can't hug her. He is denied, you see, normal human affection. Right. What's closer than uh, maternal affection, the love of a mother for her son? He can't enjoy that. Right. And, and I think we're seeing, a, we're seeing kind of a, a human side to Odysseus that we have not seen up to this point. Right? We've seen it with his men and kind of this, the strange disconnect he has from his, his men. We've seen him with these, with these women like Calypso and Circe, but nothing familial. So then would you say, Jeff, that this is a, a turning point in the story? Not, not only because it's the, 
the dead. But is this is this how Odysseus comes back from his catabasis as a changed character? Is he now more focused on Ithaca? I think that's one way you could read it. I mean, we, Odysseus is not a character that does a lot of. Uh, well, Homer doesn't give us a lot of self-reflection, right? He's not. He, we don't see Odysseus really processing um, these encounters. But I think through these different stages, um, you know, like we were just talking about, is seeing his mother, seeing a different side to Odysseus, um, I think you could certainly read this as kind of a, he's had this longing for home, but now it's, uh, it's now close. it's real, right? This time it's personal. Right. right? It's very close. Yeah. And, and soon he'll land on Ithaca. He'll go through meeting Eumaeus. He'll be reunited with his son, then still in disguise, then uh, Eurycleia, the nurse, and leading up to the big battle. Yes. But this episode uh, has taken us some places we didn't really expect. And in fact, um, we have to do a little more on the underworld, don't we? Right. We, we do. This is the first time this has happened in this podcast. Yes. Yeah, right? so listeners, you know, as they've listened to our droning, they might be surprised that we have too much material. <laughs> Who knew that death was so rich? So we're going to do a part two. We're going to do a part two. Yeah. Yep. Uh, House of the Dead. Part two. Yes. And what kinds of things are we going to talk about there? Right after he has this meeting with his mom, there's this really fascinating parade of women Mm -hmm. that comes forward. Um, These are noble women and heroines from Greek myth. Yes. I mean, obviously from Greek myth, but these these would be people that you that the listener might have heard of in other contexts. Right. There's a a lot of Theban mythology gets thrown in. Correct. There's a little miniature uh, Theban saga of um, Oedipus and his mother called in this one Epicasta, not Jocasta. Yes. So the, the miniature plots of different tragedies, there's Clytemnestra, uh, there's the encounter with Agamemnon, yes. who's also you know among the dead at this point. Right. Uh, and then the main encounter is with what hero? Is with Achilles, which I take to be the centerpiece of the whole thing, of Book 11, if not the whole epic. And right. that's where we talk about, is it better to uh, serve above or to rule below? Rule below. Which was in the opening quote. Yes. And at the very end of this book, there's a brief encounter with Heracles. Right. Yeah. We also, we see a number of the the so-called famous sinners mm-hmm. of the ancient world. So Sisyphus and, Ixion. and, and T- T- Tantalus, right. uh, but uh, Heracles as well. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it's not really clear to me why he's there, but you know, that's a subject for the next time. For part two. Yep. Now, as we wrap this up, we promised the listeners at the beginning of this episode that we we're going to talk a little bit about different views of the underworld yeah. and of the afterlife among the Greeks. And uh, you said early on that Aeneas's view of the underworld is something like a department store. Right. It's, it's, it's in some ways it kind of reflects a kind of a cliched view of the kind of ancient Greeks versus the ancient Romans. The Greeks kind of view deep, deep thinkers, but a little bit more kind of you know, fuzzy around the edges when it comes to kind of the concrete details. The Romans are builders. Practical. Uh, practical. They're the organizers. So, of course, their underworld is going to be much more uh, laid out. Yeah, much yeah. more developed. Yeah. And I think that the, uh, the Greek afterlife seems to me, in Homer at least, it gets a, a revamp in Plato, the myth of Ur, mm-hmm. and the myths that end the Gorgias and the Republic and so forth. These are more developed, more department store-like. Yeah. But in Homer, it's a, it's a pale, sad existence. Yes. You now can call ahead, you know, and get a ticket. If you have to update your license plate or something like that, you can call ahead and they'll, and they'll reply with a tweet. It's, yes. your, it's your turn, a tweet or a text, it's your turn. But typically you show up and you get your number and you wait in line and you shuffle around and everyone else there, you know what I'm talking oh, about. Oh yeah. Or you just, you sit for hours. You just sit and everyone else is sad, you know, and they're, <laughs> they're trying to entertain themselves by reading a book or a magazine or something. But 
there's not really any conversation. No. It's it's slow. It's slow. There's 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 music being piped in over and over through a tinny speaker. Repetitive stuff. Yeah, right. And uh, by the time I get to the counter and they say, "Do you want the you know the state park update?" But no, I just want to get out of here. <laughs> This is why everybody looks so horrible in their driver's license photos. That's right. You're, you're aged seven Fatigued. years. It's exhaustion. <laughs> yeah, jaundiced and wrinkled. Do you want a special kind of license plate? No, I just want to get out of here. <laughs> Take a finger if you have to, but leave me alone. Right. So that's a little bit what the Greek afterlife is. Like the DMV, yeah. Mm-hmm. It's often compared to the supposed, and I'm not sure about the theological implications of this, but the supposed ancient um, Israelite view of Sheol. Sheol, right. It's how it's often described. I don't know how accurate that is. But a house of dust, house correct. of shadows. Nothing's right. really going on, right. but it's not pleasant, no. whatever's there. So not so much a picture of torment. Uh, so with the exception of the famous sinners yes. in Nequia 11, we'll talk about that next week, most of the individuals are not really doing anything. Exactly. It's just a, a bland nothingness, kind of mm-hmm. the torture of boredom, mm-hmm. right? And as we'll see... Is that the... a good note to end on for the <laughs> podcast? <laughs> well, torture of boredom. Well, I did, I did want to mention, of course, I think it's it's this very bleakness that things like the mystery religions are responding to. Excellent. Uh, that that um, this, it's almost like the Greeks saying to themselves, there's got to be a better way. Right. Yeah. There's got to be more. Mm-hmm. Well, we need to wrap this up now. We do. Yep. Why is it that we have to get out of here today? Well, you got you've got car issues, right? I'm having vehicle trouble. Oh no! Yeah, the truckatorium, uh, the the pickup I drive, you know, around. Yeah, I'm not doing any driving. It's um, it's in the shop. It's getting fixed. It's in the truckatorium. It's in the truckatorium. Yeah. Yep. So we got to get you got to get over there and pick this thing I up. I got to. All right. Before uh, before time expires on this day. Excellent. Excellent. Well, thanks as always to our listeners for tuning in. Thanks as always to our intrepid engineer Mishka. Thank you so much, Mishka. You do great work. Yes, you do. And uh, but before we go, Dave, tell us a little bit about this Moss method. Well, it's for studying Greek. Let what? me just say that. Oh, okay. Accessible, self-paced, and expert. I'll give you good instruction to go from, here's the catchphrase, write this down, neophyte to erudite. Excellent. Go to mossmethod.com, check it out. Also, we'd like to ask you, loyal listener, if you would send us some mail, dave at adnauseum.com with a V, or jeff at adnauseum.com. Check out the website. You can leave a post or a review at Apple iTunes, somewhere like that. You could buy a t-shirt, you know, if you like what you hear, leave us a little tip under the wine glass. We've got some great AN-themed stuff available. And uh, Jeff, what's what's coming next week? We're doing part two. Part two, okay. Yeah. And you have the gustatory parting shot. Yes, this comes from comedian Daniel Tosh, uh, who says, a hamburger shouldn't cost 99 cents. Eating right is expensive, but what you spend on organic food, you save on new underwear. What now? You're going to have to... You're gonna have to <laughs> You don't have to flesh this out for me. What does underwear have to do with eating hamburgers? Well, you say, so if you're eating a lot of hamburgers, you're okay. going to get fat. Ah. So you might be saving money, but you're going to spend that money. You're saving money on the cheap burger. On the cheap burger, but you're... Which is going to make you fat. But you're expanding girth demands more and bigger Got it. skibbies. So it's not worth the girth. That's right. All right. Thanks for listening. See ya. See ya.